Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. Today's date is October 17, 2020, and this is an audiobook of On Cooperation from 1923 by Lenin. Um, I'm doing this fairly short work, just like I did the April Theses last, uh, well, a few days ago, um, because I did Stalin's concerning questions of Leninism, and in that he referenced about a half dozen short works by Lenin that I thought would be nice to also have up on the channel here. So these are um, all works from the early years of the Soviet Union after, well, of course, there was the revolution in 1917 and then a civil war for like a number of years. Finally, that was won more or less in 1922. So uh, looking at works from the mid-1920s, Really, these are the very early years of the Soviet Union when the new revolutionary government and the Communist Party uh, had to figure out some things and fast about how they were going to build socialism um, in Russia and maybe beyond. So um, this piece concerns cooperatives, worker cooperatives, um, not consumer cooperatives like there may be a food co-op in your town which is collectively owned by the customers and then you get like a 10% discount because they don't, you know, they can kind of distribute the profits somewhat. Um, but the idea here more is, is worker cooperatives, which are workplaces owned by the uh, workers in it. Now the cooperative movement goes back a long way, uh, you know, alongside Marx into the, the middle uh, 1800s, maybe even earlier. Um, you see a lot of cooperative literature alongside socialist literature, and there's nothing wrong with a cooperative. It's better than a hierarchical business. But um, I have personal experience working at a worker cooperative. Under capitalism, you're very limited in what you can do. It's probably a better workplace experience than most, but it's not socialism. Um, and I and you see uh, people like Richard Wolff, for example, who can be you know, informative and good on some subjects. He, I think, talks easily to social democrats. Um, but he promotes cooperatives as like this peaceful transition uh, or non-confrontational way to like establish socialism um, you know, now within capitalism. I think that this is highly misleading because I think he's selling people um, trying to kind of play to liberals, you know, that there's this way to, oh, have socialism without any conflict. That's just not the case because capitalists still control the marketplace that cooperatives exist within. And if cooperatives ever got big enough that they were a serious threat to capital, then you would see capital start to lash out at them. In fact, in the late 1800s, you had uh, radical labor organizations like the Knights of Labor, who probably are the closest predecessor of the IWW or Wobblies, very radical, anti-capitalist, Marxist labor union. Um, they had a network, the Knights of Labor did, of thousands of cooperatives, maybe like 2,000 cooperatives, as an alternative to capitalism. Well, where did they go? You know, cooperatives in themselves under capitalism are not, not enough. But this piece is... Lenin starting to reevaluate the role of cooperatives, as we saw um, in Stalin's Concerning Questions of Leninism. And this is a whole piece about cooperatives in capitalism and in socialism. So my preface aside, uh, this work was written January 4 and 6, 1923, first published in Pravda, 1923, May. Sources Lenin's Collected Works, second English edition, Progress Publishers, 
Moscow 1965, Volume 33, Transcription and Markup by Brian Baggins, hosted at Lenin Internet Archive 2000, uh, and then later Marxists Internet Archive, Marxists.org. Again, major tip of the hat as usual to Marxists Internet Archive, uh, Marxists.org. Go check them out. They've got thousands of free Marxist books, PDFs, you name it, online, and uh, free, free, free. So go and help yourself. Now, enough of my chit-chat. Let's get into the book, which does not have a preface. It seems to me that not enough attention is being paid to the cooperative movement in our country. Not everyone understands that now, since the time of the October Revolution, and quite apart from NEP, New Economic Plan, on the contrary, in this connection we must say because of NEP, our cooperative movement has become one of great significance. There's a lot of fantasy in the dreams of the old cooperators. Often they are ridiculously fantastic. But why are they fantastic? Because people do not understand the fundamental, the rock-bottom significance of the working-class political struggle for the overthrow of the rule of the exploiters. We have overthrown the rule of the exploiters, and much that was fantastic, even romantic, even banal, in the dreams of the old cooperators is now becoming unvarnished reality. Indeed, since political power is in the hands of the working class, since this political power owns all the means of production, the only task, indeed, that remains for us is to organize the population in cooperative societies. With most of the population organizing cooperatives, the socialism which in the past was legitimately treated with ridicule, scorn, and contempt by those who were rightly convinced that it was necessary to wage the class struggle, the struggle for political power, etc., will achieve its aim automatically. But not all comrades realize how vastly, how infinitely important it is now to organize the population of Russia in cooperative societies. By adopting NEP, we made a concession to the peasant as a trader, to the principle of private trade. It is precisely for this reason, contrary to what some people think, that the cooperative movement is of such immense importance. All we actually need under NEP is to organize the population of Russia in cooperative societies on a sufficiently large scale, for we now have found the degree of combination of private interest, of private commercial interest, with state supervision and control of this interest, that degree of its subordination to the common interests, which formerly was the stumbling block for very many socialists. Indeed, the power of the state over all large-scale means of production, political power in the hands of the proletariat, the alliance of this proletariat with the many millions of small and very small peasants, the assured proletarian leadership of the peasantry, etc., is this not all that is necessary to build a complete socialist society out of cooperatives, out of cooperatives alone, which we formerly ridiculed as, as huckstering, and which from a certain aspect we have the right to treat as such now under NEP? Is this not all that is necessary to build a complete socialist society? It is still not the building of socialist society, but it is all that is necessary and sufficient for it. It is this very circumstance that is underestimated by many of our practical workers. They look down upon cooperative societies, failing to appreciate their exceptional importance. First, from the standpoint of principle, the means of production are owned by the state. 
And second, from the standpoint of transition to the new system by means that are the simplest, easiest, and most acceptable to the peasant. But this again is a fundamental importance. It is one thing to draw out fantastic plans for building socialism through all sorts of workers' associations, and quite another to learn to build socialism in practice in such a way that every small peasant could take part in it. That is the very stage we have now reached, and there is no doubt that, having reached it, we are taking too little advantage of it. We went too far when we reintroduced NEP but not because we attached too much importance to the principle of free enterprise and trade. We went too far because we lost sight of the cooperatives, because we now underrate cooperatives, because we already are beginning to forget the vast importance of the cooperatives from the above two points of view. I now propose to discuss with the reader what can and must be at once done practically on the basis of this cooperative principle. By what means can we, and must we, start at once to develop this cooperative principle so that its socialist meaning may be clear to all? Cooperation must be politically so organized that it will not only generally and always enjoy certain privileges, but that these privileges should be of a purely material nature, a favorable bank rate, etc. The cooperatives must be granted state loans that are greater, if only by a little, than the loans we grant to private enterprises, even to heavy industry, etc. A social system emerges only if it has the financial backing of a definite class. There is no need to mention the hundreds of millions of rubles that the birth of free capitalism cost. At present, we have to realize that the cooperative's system is a social system we must now give more than ordinary assistance, and we must actually give that assistance. But it must be assistance in the real sense of the word, i.e. it will not be enough to interpret it to mean assistance for any kind of cooperative trade. By assistance, we must mean aid to cooperative trade in which really large masses of the population actually take part. It is certainly a correct form of assistance to give a bonus to peasants who take part in cooperative trade. But the whole point is to verify the nature of this participation, to verify the awareness behind it, and to verify its quality. Strictly speaking, when a cooperator goes to a village and open, opens a cooperative store, the people take no part in this whenever, but at the same time, guided by their own interests, they will hasten to try to take part in it. There is another aspect to this question. From the point of view of the enlightened European, there is not much left for us to do to induce absolutely everyone to take not a passive but inactive part in cooperative operations. Strictly speaking, there is, quote, only one thing we have left to do, and that is to make our people so, quote, enlightened, that they understand all the advantages of everybody participating in the work of the cooperatives and organized participation. There are now no other devices needed to advance to socialism. But to achieve this, there must be a veritable revolution. The entire people must go through a period of cultural development. Therefore, our rule must be as little philosophizing and as few acrobatics as possible. In this respect, NEP is an advance because it is adjustable to the level of the most ordinary peasant and does not demand anything higher of him. But it will take a whole historical epoch to get the entire population into the work of the cooperatives through NEP. 
At best, we can achieve this in one or two decades. Nevertheless, it will be a distinct historical epic, and without this historical epic, without universal literacy, without a proper degree of efficiency, without training the population sufficiently to acquire the habit of book reading, and without the material basis for this, without a certain sufficiency to safeguard against, say, bad harvests, famine, etc., without this we shall not achieve our object." The thing now is to learn to combine the wide revolutionary range of action, the revolutionary enthusiasm which we have displayed and displayed abundantly and crowned with complete success. To learn to combine this with, I'm almost inclined to say, the ability to be an efficient and capable trader, which is quite enough to be a good cooperator. By ability to be a trader, I mean the ability to be a cultured trader. Let those Russians or peasants who imagine that since they trade, they are good traders, get that well into their heads. This does not follow that at all. They do trade, but that is far from being cultured traders. They now trade in an Asiatic manner, but to be a good trader, one must trade in the European manner. They are a whole epic behind in that. In conclusion, a number of economic, financial, and banking privileges must be granted to the cooperatives. This is the way our socialist state must promote the new principle on which the population must be organized. But this is only the general outline of the task. It does not define and depict in detail the entire content of the practical task, i.e. we must find what form of bonus to give for joining the cooperatives, and the terms on which we should give it the form of bonus by which we shall assist the cooperative sufficiently, the form of bonus that will produce the civilized cooperator. And given social ownership of the means of production, given the class victory of the proletariat over the bourgeoisie, the system of civilized cooperators is the system of socialism. January 4, 1923. And there is a part two here, section two. Whenever I wrote about the new economic policy, I always quoted the article on state capitalism, which I wrote in 1918, Left-Wing Childnish and the Petty Bourgeois Mentality, Part 3. This has more than once aroused doubts in the minds of certain young comrades, but their doubts were mainly on abstract political points. It seemed to them that the term state capitalism could not be applied to a system under which the means of production were owned by the working class, a working class that held political power. They did not notice, however, that I used the term state capitalism firstly to connect historically our present situation with the position adopted in my controversy with the so-called left communists. Also, I argued at the time that state capitalism would be superior to our existing economy. It was important for me to show the continuity between ordinary state capitalism and the unusual, very, even very unusual, state capitalism to which I referred in introducing the reader to the new economic policy. Secondly, the practical purpose was always important to me, and the practical purpose of our new economic policy was to lease out concessions. In the prevailing circumstances, concessions in our country would unquestionably have been a pure type of state capitalism. That is how I argued about state capitalism. But there is another aspect of the matter for which we may need state capitalism, or at least a comparison with it. It is a question of cooperatives. In the capitalist state, cooperatives are no doubt collective capitalist institutions, nor is there any doubt that under our present economic conditions, when we combined private capitalist enterprises, but in no other way than nationalized land and in no other way than under the control of the working class state, 
with enterprises of the consistently socialist type, the means of production, the land on which the enterprises are situated, and the enterprises as a whole belonging to the state, the question arises about a third type of enterprise, the cooperatives, which were not formally regarded as an independent type differing fundamentally from the others. Under private capitalism, cooperative enterprises differ from capitalist enterprises as collective enterprises differ from private enterprises. Under state capitalism, cooperative enterprises differ from state capitalist enterprises, firstly, because they are private enterprises, and secondly, because they are collective enterprises. Under our present system, cooperative enterprises differ from private capitalist enterprises because they are collective enterprises, but do not differ from socialist enterprises if the land on which they are situated and means of production belong to the state, i.e. the working class. This circumstance is not considered sufficiently when cooperatives are discussed. It is forgotten that owing to the special features of our political system, our cooperatives acquire an altogether exceptional significance. If we exclude concessions which, incidentally, have not developed on any considerable scale, cooperation under our conditions nearly always coincides fully with socialism. Let me explain what I mean. Why were the plans of the old cooperators, from Robert Owen onwards, fantastic? Because they dreamed of peacefully remodeling contemporary society into socialism without taking account of such fundamental questions as the class struggle, the capture of political power by the working class, the overthrow of the rule of the exploiting class. That is why we are right in regarding as entirely fantastic this, quote, cooperative socialism, and as romantic and even banal, the dream of transforming class enemies into class collaborators and class war into class peace, so-called class truce, by merely organizing the population in cooperative societies. Undoubtedly, we were right from the point of view of the fundamental task of the present day, for socialism cannot be established without a class struggle for the political power and a state. But see how things have changed now that the political power is in the hands of the working class, now that the political power of the exploiters is overthrown, and all the means of production, except those which the workers' state voluntarily abandons on specified terms, and for a certain time to the exploiters in the form of concessions, are owned by the working class. Now, we are entitled to say that for us, the mere growth of cooperation, with the slight exception mentioned above, is identical with the growth of socialism. And at the same time, we have to admit that there has been a radical modification in our whole outlook on socialism. The radical modification is this. Formerly, we placed, and had to place, the main emphasis on the political struggle, on revolution, on winning political power, etc. Now the emphasis is changing and shifting to peaceful, organizational, cultural work. I should say that emphasis is shifting to educational work, were it not for our international relations, were it not for the fact that we have to fight for our position on a world scale. If we leave that aside, however, and continue ourselves to internal economic relations, the emphasis in our work is certainly shifting to education. Two main tasks confront us, which constitute the epoch. To reorganize our machinery of state, which is utterly useless, in which we took over in its entirety from the preceding epoch. During the past five years of struggle, we did not and could not drastically reorganize it. Our second task is educational work among the peasants. And the economic object of this educational work among the peasants is to organize the latter in cooperative societies. 
If the whole of the peasantry had been organized in cooperatives, we would by now have been standing with both feet on the soil of socialism. But the organization of the entire peasantry in cooperative societies presupposes a standard of culture, and the peasants, precisely among the peasants as the overwhelming class, that cannot, that cannot, in fact, be achieved without a cultural revolution. Our opponents told us repeatedly that we were rash in undertaking to implant socialism in, a, in an insufficiently cultured country, but they were misled by our having started from the opposite end to that prescribed by theory, the theory of pedants of all kinds, because in our country the political and social revolution preceded the cultural revolution, that very cultural revolution which nevertheless now confronts us. This cultural revolution would now suffice to make our country a completely socialist country, but it presents immense difficulties of a purely cultural, for, for we are illiterate, and material character, for to be cultured, we must achieve a certain development of the material means of production, we must have a certain material base. January 6, 1923. End of audiobook. So in the midst of a very frantic work to, you know, put the civil war behind them and five years of intense struggle, uh, armed struggle against capitalists here, Lenin and the communist party sit down to, you know, say, what are we going to do? We got this country. What are we going to do with it? Um, it's in the condition that it's in. What can we do with it being that it's in the condition that it's in? And, uh, you know, his, his conclusion here is that they should make a lot more use of the cooperative societies, um, collective enterprises where all of the workers who work in a workplace own an equal piece of that workplace, um, which previously they had, as he said, you know, he mentions Robert Owen, who Engels and Marx talk about a lot. Um, he's a guy from the uh, early, the first half of the 1800s who um, I believe was English and or in the UK somewhere. And um, he had this whole system of, uh, he was a capitalist who said, hey, you know, we could make uh, working under capitalism really nice for people. We could give them really good conditions and we could set up these like little utopian, you know, factory camp things that would actually be pleasant. Um, but of course it, you know, and I feel like this is what Richard Wolff is saying in a way that, uh, oh, we can just have cooperatives and replace capitalism that way. Well, what about the bloodthirsty 1% that absolutely doesn't want to transition away from capitalism and would literally rather shoot almost every last one of us than allow us to transition away from capitalism? They have to be confronted. So what Lenin is saying here is that, more or less, I mean, he's saying a lot of things, but um, that whereas cooperatives were not a substitute for the kind of class war that the Bolsheviks were waging uh, and needed to wage to confront capitalists head on. Um, once the proletariat through the revolution has achieved political power and neutralized the capitalists, well, then cooperatives make a lot of sense. And I'll tell you from, you know, my experience in a cooperative in a rented space owned by a capitalist. So, He's talking about, you know, the differences of cooperatives here on nationalized land and where um, the, the proletarian state, the revolutionary socialist state even owns the means of production. But the cooperative is left to, if I'm reading it correctly, the uh, individuals themselves who work at the place to like just do it. It's like, 
kind of like a franchise, but it's owned by the state. And it's really just up to the individuals working there to like manage it themselves. And uh, they can develop their trading skills, as he talked about. But, um, you know, he mentioned that there are major cultural barriers, not the least of which was that there was massive illiteracy. So how do illiterate peasants run a business? How do you even, you know, run the books in that case? You know, some people may be triggered by listening to Lenin use words like civilized versus Asiatic. First of all, Asiatic is uh, a reference to what Marx called one of the earlier epics prior to feudalism. Um, he called the Asiatic mode of production. That's kind of outside the scope of this video. But if you look up dialectical materialism, Asiatic mode of production is explained. But he's talking about how they're engaging in a very, you know, illiterate people will engage in a very kind of primitive system of trade. The object of the Bolsheviks was to surpass the level of development in capitalist countries. That's not likely to happen with what he calls uncivilized people who, you know, can't read or anything else. He's not passing judgment on those people. He's just saying, you know, imagine you ha had a franchise. Would you hire an illiterate person to manage it? Probably not because they just they lack the cultural capital to like do the job, basically. Uh, they can do it on a, maybe a certain level that would be somewhat crude, but lacking that education, you know, s somebody else with more education would be able to do a better job of running that enterprise. So that's what he's seeing here is that if they can get the peasantry into the cooperatives, it may be a way to, you know, up their skill level, educate them. But it's a tricky balance and they've got to figure out how to do it. And also, you know, as he mentioned, giving cooperatives a favorable bank rate in order to materially uh, favor the promotion of cooperatives. So I find this very interesting. Um, if you're interested in worker cooperatives in the United States, uh, go to usworker.coop, C-O-O-P. And uh, that is the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. You'll find a lot of literature about cooperatives. Again, I'd rather work at a co-op uh, than at a regular business. There's more democracy. There really is, honestly. But again, it's not socialism. You're, you're very limited within that democratic enterprise to what you can do because the land that you're on with the, the business, wherever you're doing the business, your shop or your factory or whatever, it's either going to be owned, you know, you're paying taxes to the capitalist state, or maybe you're even renting the, the place from a capitalist landlord. So until we develop, you know, massive cooperative networks that own land and, you know, have sway in government and all this kind of thing, um, you're really dancing to the tune of the capitalists, albeit a little bit more democratically within the walls of the workplace. And I, you know, I promote it. Um, it's a good thing, but we still need the class struggle. We still need, you know, to confront capitalists because you're not going to get slumlords you're not going to get a donald trump type slumlord to just you know turn his building over to the tenants to you know become a housing co-op it's not going to happen you know they're parasites and they want to have their instruments of exploitation to drain the lifeblood surplus value out of the tenants or the employees or whichever kind of or uh, debtors whichever kind of capitalism it is so a struggle still has to be waged for that. But yeah, by all means, set up all the co-ops that you can. And I'll be doing more in this series on the early Soviet Union, the Soviet system, the cooperatives, and um, 
you know, just looking at the tasks of what did, you know, let's say we ever got to a point in the United States where a socialist movement was like this on the brink of, you know, achieving power. Uh, there are a lot of lessons that we could learn from what they actually did, which, you know, obviously they kept extensive notes on in the Soviet Union. And with that, I will end my commentary. Thanks to our current patrons. Uh, we're found at patreon.com slash socialism for all. Their current patron names are on the screen. You can support socialism for all for as little as $2 a month or as many as $200 a month. Every one of those contributions from $2 on up is very encouraging to me. I love to see a new name in the pa patron roster, so please do keep them coming. Of course, the more actual money I get, um, the more time I can spend on this. So lots of twos and fives or, you know, a few fifties or hundreds, whatever. Um, the more money, the more time I definitely can spend on this. I actually was approached recently by somebody who is running a theory-based Discord server. We might get more of a book club going. So I'll give you more news on that as it comes. You can also follow us at facebook.com slash socialism for all, uh, both as socialism for all and socialism the number for all. I made that as a backup because Facebook has been throttling us hard. I've actually been losing followers after gaining two or 300 followers a week. I don't think that's an organic change. All right. Thanks. And we will catch you in the next video for revolution 2030. This is socialism for all.